morning. Glad you're here this morning. I brought my pillow with me. I'm going to use it a little later. I guess if things go really bad, then I'll be laying down. But uh, it's really good to see see you here. I'm glad you're here. It's a great day for a picnic, isn't it? Really beautiful day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I like that. Um, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to to pray for me and with me. Uh, Tuesday, I'm going to India for, well, I'll be there for about six days, I think, maybe five. I don't know. I haven't added it up. It's hard to tell with the time difference, but a friend of mine, Tim Shang Sharik, is in uh, Guwahati, India, starting a ministry there, and I'm on a board of uh, pastors and leaders who uh, are responsible for overseeing a a network of churches or really getting a network started. And so um, we're going to see what he's doing to explore what's going on. That was our original intent, just to find out what he's doing, see how we could help. And um, he decided to take the opportunity of our arrival to do a leadership seminar. And so we're going to be doing a two-day leadership seminar in Guwahati for, he, he hopes, about 300 people. And last I heard, people were signing up. So if you could pray with us just for safety and travel, that we'd really help Tim Shane uh, to move forward and just what he's doing there. He's just beginning his ministry, and uh, that, that'd be fantastic. But I take off Tuesday. Alex is going to be speaking next week. Uh, Alex, our worship leader, and then um, I'll be back on the 15th. So I just want to let you know about that and ask for your prayers. It'd be great. Uh, we're in a message series that we've called How to Bounce Back from Anything, and there are two parts to every bounce. There's the down and the up. Every bounce, there's the down and the up. Um, last week, we looked at a passage of Scripture that Jesus read to his hometown crowd, and I can imagine you know, if I read this to my hometown crowd and said it was about me, that they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't take me very seriously. But Jesus read it, and he said, this is, this is speaking of me. And they actually rejected him, his hometown crowd. That's where the saying comes, prophet is without honor in his own country, his own town. They, they didn't believe him. But I thought about that. Can you imagine growing up on the same block as Jesus? You know, he's one of your neighborhood friends. And I got in a lot of arguments with my neighborhood friends. But he would always be right. I could, I could never win the argument. He never, he never sinned. He was perfect. And so anyway, I just got into that while I was getting ready for today's message, thinking, wow, that's, that'd be fascinating. Um, anyway, he went to the synagogue. He had, his ministry had been going for about a year. He went to the synagogue. And this is the passage that he read. This is by way of review. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Everybody in that crowd that he was quoting that verse to, they knew that verse. They, were, they hung to it. They clung to the hopes of that verse. They were wondering, is this the year of the Lord's favor? Is this the year that God is going to um, bring in the year of favor for us? And they also knew the next verse, which is what he read, or what he didn't read, but they knew it, and they understood that he was applying this to him. Verse 3, 
of Isaiah 61. To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. He read this saying that this is what he's going to do. He will take the very thing that is the source of grief and pain and depression and turn it into joy and celebration. He, he will take the seeds of your difficult circumstances, and if we cooperate with him and trust him and walk with him, he'll use them to grow deep roots in us over time that will turn into a tree of righteousness in our lives. Now, in this series, we're, we're looking at six words that Jesus used to describe how to bounce back. How do we bounce back from, from hard things, from tough times, from things that get us down? Jesus' resurrection proves that he has the power to bounce back. That's what we looked at last week. All, all six words start with the prefix re, re. The prefix means to go back or to do again. That's the idea in, in the Latin that that word's from. The first thing we must do to bounce back is to go back and address our sin, which is the reason for the collective fall behind every individual fall that we experience. Uh, the RE word last week was resurrection. Today we're going to look at the next important word to understand in order to bounce back. Um, we'll look at how we need to go back and admit the truth about ourselves that God wants us to change as we deal with the downs of life, re repentance. Now, when you hear the word repent, you may be like me, and you may it may conjure up images of crazy people holding signs and screaming and yelling through a bullhorn that you're a sinner and you need to repent. That, that may be what comes to mind. I've seen that in movies. I've actually seen it in real life, people yelling through a, a bullhorn. But in the Bible, that's, that's not sort of the sense of repentance. Repentance is not something anyone can force you into. You have to choose it for yourself. The Bible says it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. As you begin to... You know, as you're, maybe you're down, maybe you're having a tough time, and you begin to see, God, would you help me? You find out how kind he is, how gracious he is. It's not something, someone screaming and yelling at you to repent that leads you to repentance. It's the kindness of God that does so. Repentance literally means to change your mind. That, that's literally what it means. Repentance is the point in time when we agree with God about the wrong we've done and we turn around, we do a 180. It has the idea of change of mind, a 180, a complete turnaround, and we go his way rather than our way. So it's a change of mind that leads us to go a new direction. Now, my default mode when I've been found out that I've done something wrong or when... when I've blown it, and I know I have myself. I didn't have some, somebody didn't need to point it out to me. I knew I was wrong. My default mode is start justifying myself, and I'm really good at it. I mean, I, I, can, I can come up with great reasons for what I've done and excuse myself and explain myself, 
And that's how I try to soften the blow for myself. When I met my wife, Cindy, in college, and I'm, I'm a night person. I'm not a real morning person. And we had an 8 o'clock class together one semester after we were engaged. We were already engaged. And I had a habit of sleeping through that class. And whenever I did, I really, I really didn't want to face Cindy because the class was marriage and family. <laughs> and I, I remember... I, I could come up with great reasons <laughs> for for skip, you know sleeping through you know and I never intended to it wasn't like it but you know, just I was hungry at midnight and I had to go get some food or whatever it was you know I just I didn't mean to I didn't hear the alarm I mean I was horrible so anyway if I were her I would have been very concerned at that point but thanks to God she pushed through and uh, she she hung on and. Maybe she saw something there. I don't know. But anyway, that, that's what we do. We, we deal with grief on a sliding scale. Some of it is when we disappoint ourselves like that. I didn't feel good about myself when I slept through the class. I knew it had been better if I hadn't and tried to explain myself. Um, hey, can uh, Nathan, maybe can you or you guys help Cliff? Let, let, me, let me pray for him. Let me pray. God, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you watch over Cliff. I pray that you'd help him to be calm, whatever is going on, by your power and in your grace. I pray that you bring calm. We thank you, God. Thank you for doing that. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. All right. Um, <clears throat> back to what I was talking about. We we deal with grief on a sliding scale. And uh, it can go from a deep sadness or a sorrow when we, when we lose someone close to us. Uh, maybe we lose our financial security. We lose a marriage or a friendship or a dream. There's sort of a sliding scale to our grief. Um, sometimes we grieve because we've disappointed ourselves. We've, we've blown it in some way. And... We're the reason for the loss. And when you're the reason for the loss, boy, you, you, what do we say? I, I'm just, I want to kick myself. And so sometimes we kick ourselves over and over and over again. Um, and that just saddens us at a very deep level. We, we tend to say... Uh, that, you know, I just, just leave me alone. You know, maybe, maybe I could use this pillow right now, lay and wallow on the ground. I don't want to bounce back. I just want to lay on the ground. The scripture says repentance is the key to experiencing good grief. Is he okay, bro? Okay. Cliff's okay. All right. Um, repentance is the key to experiencing good grief. 2 Corinthians 7 says, even if I caused you sorrow... By my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. 
And, and this passage, the source, the source of pain that Paul's talking about, is his first letter to Corinth. He had to correct them for some wrong that was going on in the church. There were some, some wrong things happening. He had to correct them. And Paul was very concerned about the pain that his first letter of correction might have caused. And, and then he, what he was concerned about is how they were going to respond to it. They, you know, I know how he felt. I've been a parent. And no parent who loves their kids, no good parent wants to correct them. They, they don't want to discipline them, and, and they don't want to make them feel bad. And it doesn't feel good to correct. But you do it because you love your kids. But you're always concerned, as a parent, I was concerned that they might get really mad and keep rebelling if I kept correcting or kept disciplining them. And, you know, sometimes my parents would say to me, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I never bought that. I, that never made sense to me. I, I, I understood, you know, I understood what they were saying, but trust me, that made no sense. Only when you grow up and have children of your own do you understand that. That's what's going on with Paul. He says, my first letter, I was concerned. I actually, after I wrote it and made the correction, I was concerned. I was a little sorrowful because I was afraid it was going to send you the wrong direction. He was afraid that they would get mad and miss the point of the letter. I get that. But it didn't. The first letter accomplished what God intended for it to accomplish. And then Paul goes on and makes some very instructive statements about the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And this is what we need to understand. This is very important for bouncing back. We must know this. Um, worldly sorrow, the focus is on pain itself, the pain that we're going through. Um, there is no point to the pain. All that matters is that we make it go away. We want to get rid of the pain. We may be sorry that we got caught, but we're not really sorry about what we did or said. And so we're focusing on the pain. And we try to make it go away in one of two ways. We either numb the pain or we blame the pain. We numb the pain by finding something in the world to make us feel better. That's one of the ways we do, like a drink of alcohol then another drink or some drugs or Whatever it is, we turn to a friend to console us, uh, which is legitimate. But if you're depending on the friend over God, then you, you can, can go the wrong direction. Or we want our kids, sometimes as parents, you know, we just want our kids, just today, would you, would you give me a little positive feedback? Just this once, you know. We look there, we're just hoping, and then we get upset when they don't. You know, they're kids. They're not thinking that way. That's not their deal. But anyway, we, we try to numb the pain uh, by going to someone or something to, to help it get numb. We blame the pain by getting mad at someone in this world. Um, we, if we can't think of anyone in this world to be mad about, then we get mad at the one who made the world. We get mad at God. And, and our, our energy is focused outside of ourselves on things in the world or the one who made the world. Both of these tactics focus outside of ourselves. And so it, it focuses on something in the world, outside of us. And so it's called worldly sorrow. Um, we're looking for help here in this world, generating the help from our own energy. 
This is like deciding that the check engine light on your car is a problem and not the engine. And so you just grab a hammer and smash the dashboard, knock out the light. That, that's what it's like. Instead of popping the hood, you just turn the light off. Worldly sorrow brings death. It separates you from God and many times people, and the separation just keeps growing. There's no relief with worldly sorrow, and you get stuck. The only relief is turning to God. Uh, the result of worldly sorrow is increased frustration, anger, bitterness, destructive patterns. And, and that's what it says in the Scripture, death. That's what it's talking about. God wants the pain. He wants the sorrow to draw us closer to him. But we've used the pain to push him away. And, and we push others away as well as, as we blame, as we numb, and we wall ourselves off, off from the people around us. So instead of bouncing back, we actually experience more pain. The wrong kind of sorrow produces these kinds of things, bitterness and frustration and anger. With godly sorrow, the focus is on God's purpose for the pain. Major difference. The focus of this kind of sorrow is on what God wants to do through the pain in our lives. When we hit the ground, what he wants is he wants us to turn to him. So we go back. When we hit the ground, we go back and we start searching out what God wants to change in us. Whether or not the sorrow is our fault, whether or not we've grieved ourselves or we're the source of our grief, God wants to use grief to really help us grow and change. That's the great thing about knowing God and, and knowing the Lord Jesus is he uses the ups and the downs. And my experience is many times in the grief, he's really spoken to me. And the reason is because when I grieve and when I turn to him, when I'm grieving or sorrowful or sad and I turn to him, the focus is on what really matters. What is really important in my life? What really makes a difference? And I begin to, and God really uses this time. What happens if we have the right kind of sorrow, godly sorrow, is we pop the hood and we look inside. We go to the mechanic to help us figure it out. Sometimes it's obvious what we need to change. You know, you pop the hood, and my, my level of mechanical ability. It would have to be the battery or, you know, maybe a cable on the battery is off or the oil cap's loose or off or gone. or It would have to be something simple. Beyond that, I need help. Other times, I, I, you need to look under the hood and you, you can't see the source of the problem and you need some input. You need some outside help just to help you sort things out. And this is why church is helpful. Because at church... At, at the right kind of church, at a good church, you can find people who know the Bible, and they actually are trying to live the Bible. And as they try to live the Bible, they understand more and more how God made life work, how he's put it together. And so uh, it's important at this point, when you can't figure out the problem, to go to somebody who knows Scripture and tries to live it out, and you you watch their lives. The people that you choose. The Bible says the people you choose to get input from when you need help are those who know the scriptures, they live it, and you see the difference the scriptures make in their life. 
you, you see the fruit that they are experiencing. Find someone who's showing the fruit of walking with God, that their life is heading in a good direction. It's growing and, and changing for the better. Find someone you can trust and, and go to them and get input. That's when you need it, when you can't figure out what the problem is. The result of godly sorrow is lasting change. How do you tell the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, practically? You know, the tears and the emotions are really the same. Um, Here's how. Pay attention. Are you reaching for anything trying to numb the pain? Are you trying to get other people to help you numb the pain and stop it? Are you reaching out to them? Are you mad? Are you blaming Are you mostly talking about what others have done to you rather than productively dealing with the problem? That's worldly sorrow. If you're numbing or blaming, godly sorrow comes from humility, not anger. It produces questions about you, not other people. You begin to ask the questions, how can I change? What could I do differently? Worldly sorrow ends in a crash of death. Godly sorrow is a key to bouncing back like a Super Bowl. You, you can even look back at the pain with gratitude because God used it to save your life. He used it to get your attention and begin to work this lasting change. So it's very important to understand the difference between those two things. And here, here's just a side note. If you are watching someone else around you fall over and over and over again, someone that you love and care about. They're into destructive patterns. The last thing you want to do is cushion their fall. Because what happens when you cushion the fall? No bounce. There's no bounce. They won't be able to bounce. If, if this ball could feel pain, if it had nerve endings and could feel pain, um, it would feel better landing on the pillow, but it, it doesn't bounce. It doesn't bounce back. Be careful not to equate love with taking away someone's pain. Sometimes that's important, but be careful when someone's in a, a destructive pattern. You could be getting in the way of the bounce that God intends if you cushion them. We, we need to be kind We need to be gracious. We need to be loving. But if you take away the pain, someone could get in a situation where they never bounce. Paul said that the Corinthians became sorrowful as God intended. They became sorrowful as God intended. God intends sorrow over wrong. And the way we're wired, the only time we're really sorry is when we've hit the ground. That's the way people are. Don't get in God's way. Don't do it. God intends sorrow over wrong. Let him do the work that he wants to do. You know, it's important to realize it's, it's not always a bad thing to feel bad. God has wired this into our emotional makeup. He's wired it in to point to a problem. To help us identify what's going on. It's a major way that God points out these problems in our lives. It's, it's like here you're driving down the road and you hear a different kind of noise in the engine 
and you have to stop to figure out what's going on. That's, that's what our, the role that our emotions play in our lives. Don't waste sorrow. It, it's there for a reason. God wants to grow some things in you and I. Let him bring a good result out of the bad. The right kind of sorrow does grow fruit. It, it, it grows good fruit in us. You know, being sorry isn't enough. That's not an indication of repentance, as you find in Scripture. You know, that's, that's why when people apologize, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for what I've done, and they, they keep doing the same thing, well, I'm sorry. And, you know, many times people can use it as a, a way to deflect any conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. But that's not enough when it comes to repentance. That's not an indication of repentance. John the Baptist said it best when he said in Matthew 3, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is like a tree that has deep roots that go down into our soul. The best way to identify repentance is by the fruit it produces in our life. Just because someone says they're sorry doesn't mean they've repented. And sometimes we feel bad because someone's disappointed us, they've wronged us, they keep letting us down over and over and over again. They've apologized, but we still there's still tension and we don't trust them. That that's normal. Forgiveness is something that we freely give, but trust is something that has to be earned. And that's what you find in Scripture. So, same thing happens with ourselves when we keep blowing it and disappointing ourselves. We don't trust ourselves anymore. We hear ourselves talking, but we don't think we're actually going to do anything different. We just think to ourselves, well, that's a, that's, that's a bunch of malarkey. That's not going to happen. We don't trust ourselves. It's the way it is. So it's important to understand that repentance is more than being sorrow. Sorry, godly sorrow develops the right kind of things in you. It brings out the right kind of fruit. And here, here's the fruit. Paul actually describes it very well. If, if you're the one that needs to repent, you need to make sure that you're bearing this kind of fruit. You need to do something in response to the sorrow. You need to produce fruit. Here it is, 2 Corinthians 7:11. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. Now, I, I want to stop at each word or most of the words and talk about what they mean in the Greek language that this was originally written in because there's a lot of understanding that can come through that. Um, what earnestness. Literally, it means speed. You don't put the problem on the back burner. It goes to the top of the, your to-do list, and you take initiative to make it right. You take an initiative to do what you can to make, make the situation right. What eagerness to clear yourselves. Literally, apologia. It, it literally means to give an apology or an account of what you've done. You're not explaining it away, but you're actually admitting it and, and giving an account. Um, what indignation. You, you have the appropriate level of disgust over what's, what you've done. What alarm. The word's phobia in the Greek. You realize how serious the wrong is, and you are rightly afraid that you might do it again. And so what you do is you create a margin between you and doing that again. You, you, you put 
hedges in place. You put something in place to keep you from having the same kind of fall. What longing, what concern. Literally, the word concern means to boil. Your desire to make things right and to do right doesn't cool down and it doesn't go away, but it boils. This is what godly sorrow produces in us. What readiness to see justice done. You you want to make it right, so you come up with a plan to make it right, and you walk through the steps. You do the steps. You you do what you plan to do. And then Paul makes comment at every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So the, the sorrow they experienced was godly sorrow, and it produced repentance. If we choose godly sorrow, good grief, good grief, produces the good fruit of lasting change. If we turn to God and we learn to cooperate with him, he can turn the source of grief and pain and depression into joy. This is what Jesus promised in, in the first in the passage I read at the beginning. He will make our grief into joy if we allow him to. God, God can make my grief good if I face the truth Whenever I fall, instead of trying to numb the pain or blame the pain, I choose to look at myself and what I've done to cause the falls I experience. What's my part? What, what, what can I own here in this? I turn to God. I turn to his word and I ask him to show me the real source of the pain I'm experiencing. It's one, why it's one reason it's so helpful to come and hear the word on Sundays. Because he uses it as a mirror to show us what's going on underneath the hood. It's important if if you're investigating what it means to follow Christ or you're just starting out and walking with him. It's important to make it a habit to come and hear the word. And then to get connected to people who are in the Bible and who are living it out. Who can encourage you and walk with you and help you figure out uh, what what the truth is in the different situations. But here's the, here's the way it is in life. Things don't bounce unless they hit the bottom. Humans are like that. The bounce only occurs after we've hit the ground. The bottom of our fall occurs whenever we admit the truth about ourselves. That's, that's when we've hit the low. That's when we start the upward trajectory. God wants to use our downers, our bummers, to get our attention and lead us to seek the truth about ourselves that needs to change. Sometimes, whether or not um, the fall is our fault, even then, even when it's not our fault, grief can be good because it turns our attention to what really matters. God sees the truth about you, and likely the people around you see the truth about you as well. And he uses the fault to bring the truth to light. Until you get to the point of addressing the truth about yourself, you will keep falling. But when you get to the point where you're ready to admit the truth, that's ground zero in the bounce. That's, that's the bottom. It helps if we can learn quickly to face the truth. Just try to make it a habit. And face the truth. Repentance isn't just being sorry about what happened, but it's a specific moment that turns you around. God can make my grief good 
when I'm ready to face the truth about myself. He can make my grief good. Uh, if I get input to help me see the truth when I'm trying to sort it out and I can't see it. If you aren't sure what the real problem is, find someone that you can trust who knows the Bible and lay it out for them. Ask them to help you figure this out. That may take some time to find someone. Ask God to bring that person around. The fruit of repentance isn't going to grow overnight. It's planted, it's watered, and then the weeds have to be removed, and then over time it grows. But as you work and do your part on the fruit of repentance, then God does the miracle of the bounce. He brings things back. This is the way God makes our sorrow good. And good grief produces the good fruit of lasting change in our lives. If we never repent, if we never hit the ground and admit admit the truth about ourselves, then we keep falling and we never change. It's like we bounce like a ping pong ball, you know, like that, or we get smacked back and forth and all around. If we can learn the core lesson today to face the truth about ourselves, to get input if we need it, to turn to God and ask for his help, in turning around and changing, we can change. And the falls that we experience are, are productive. They bear the fruit that God intends. If we don't repent, then we leave ourselves open to become angry and bitter and dependent on destructive things that will rob us of the ability to enjoy life. If we'll repent, then we can actually learn to appreciate the pain. Not that we want it, not that we look forward to it, but we appreciate what God does through it. And that's, pain is a fact of life. The falls are a part of everyday life. We all experience them. The thing about God and the thing about knowing the Lord Jesus Christ is he can make them good. He can use them for our benefit. If we understand repentance and how people bounce back, We can relate more wisely to the people we love who keep crashing. If we're not careful, our good intentions can actually work against God's purpose and intention in the fall and the way he wants to use the pain. So we have to be careful about that. If we face the truth about ourselves, then God can make good of the pain that we're experiencing. It's it's an amazing thing. That he does. What Jesus read to his hometown crowd comes true. He, he turns the, the ashes into something beautiful and joyful. I'd like to wrap up the message, uh, message this morning by asking you to think through some things. If you would, uh, take the connection card out of your program and look at the next steps. On the left-hand side, kind of toward the the middle of the page, there are some next steps that are particularly related to um, the, the message this morning. Um, here are some suggestions that I've given for next steps that you could take as a result of this message. My next step is to pray this week for God to show me changes he wants to make through my pain. Just set some time aside or pray every day, God, would you show me? Maybe you're going through some kind of grief. There's some kind of loss you're experiencing. And take the time every day, once this week, set, a time some t- set aside some time, and ask God to show the changes. 
If you need input, ask God to bring someone to mind or think through someone that you can trust to help you sort it out and to think it through. And then finally, for the first time, I'm deciding to accept Jesus as my Savior and follow him as my Lord. You may be investigating what it means to follow Christ, and you're ready to make that decision. If you are, let us know. We'd love to support you in that decision. In a moment, we're going to receive our offering. And I'd like, if you would, to ask you to please finish uh, completing any information on the connection card or the next steps as I'm talking through this. When the offering ushers come by, you could drop that card in the offering basket. That'd be great. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we are really glad you're here. And we have a gift for you. It's, called, uh, it's a book called The Case for Christ. It explains uh, a lot, answers a lot of questions about how, how do we know that Jesus is who he said he was? How can you investigate that? It's a, it's a very helpful book. You can put the, pick the book up. It's right to the left of the doors as you walk out of this room uh, today. Would you pray with me? And I'd like to ask the band to come up as I pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, your kindness. And I ask God that uh, you would give us the strength to take the next steps that you've laid on our heart. I pray that you'd help us, God, to uh, just readily admit the truth about ourselves. We can do that, Lord, because you, you've forgiven as we turn to you. You forgive. As we accept what you've done, Lord Jesus Christ, on our behalf, you freely forgive. So help us learn more and more to admit quickly the truth about ourselves and to allow you to use the sorrow and the pain and the grief in our lives to make the changes, the lasting change that you want to make. God, we ask for your help in this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.